welcome to The Lodgers. My name is Simon Howell, and this is, of course, Sword of Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. I'm joined, as always, by the fantastically talented Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And I don't know if you could tell from our sparkling chemistry at the moment, <laughs> but uh, we're actually in the same room, which has never happened before. I mean, it has happened in life. It's not for this podcast. God, I'm getting off to a great start. Anyway, hi, Kate. <laughs> hi, Simon. <laughs> Woo! So, yeah, we're obviously here to discuss the first... We were going to do two separate podcasts for the first two and then the third and fourth. But I know, Kate, if you're anything like me, you had access to all four episodes. You watched all four episodes. And then trying to keep everything straight just became a tedious, embarrassing Yes. Simon Simon also knows that uh, we watched all four at once because him and I were up to like 4 a.m. The night that they came out, like rapidly texting each other as as soon as they were over. (laughs) Um, uh, Yes, we definitely watched all four very quickly when they came out uh, and then had to like rewatch them repeatedly and talk about them ad nauseum uh and when i say had to i just mean wanted to (laughs) but but we wanted to and it was fantastic uh as i'm sure many people in this audience did that whole week as well yeah just to set the scene so for a different podcast that is not hosted on sword cinema um i'm going to be doing a segment on and i i know i know everyone uh, but I'm going to be doing a segment on Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which I'm watching the entirety of for this one segment, uh, old school Televerse style. I will say this for Aaron Sorkin shows. They're bad. They're frequently terrible, but they move. If you need a good distraction while you're waiting for something actually amazing that you've been waiting for for a long time, highly recommend checking in with a Sorkin show. They at least they have they've got momentum. They will distract you with the constant dialogue and the infuriating ideology highly recommend it. it it really made my day go by as i was waiting for those episodes well i was texting simon while we were waiting for the new episodes to start as well and olivia and i had like basically spent all day distracting ourselves by wandering around getting donuts and pie and like way more sugar than was humanly consumable in any amount of time <laughs> and then we got home we were like okay well now we'll watch lynch stuff and we ended up watching like a documentary in the Mulholland drive thing then we were like, okay, now it's time. Let's watch, uh, you know, Lonely Souls or something to really get in the headspace. And we're so distracted by like the the counting down of the minutes that we basically <laughs> just ended up like walking around the apartment, like exclaiming how excited we were for the hour leading up to it, and like carefully organizing our pie. And then, of course, <laughs> immediately realize like once the show starts that like we are not in uh, pie eating Twin Peaks land anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I've determined that the best time to eat your Twin Peaks treats is actually before you watch. Yes. Um, But now, I mean, we can talk about this, I suppose, as we get into the new episodes. But I have to say, like, once the episode started, the whole concept of, like, timing treats with this just seemed like a really dumb idea. It did. It seemed like a stupid idea. We did not, uh, I think, sort of between the break uh, after the first two-parter ended we were like okay i guess we should eat some of this epic amount of junk food that we bought <laughs> so we sort of forced ourselves to take a 10 minute break uh but other than that it's like you couldn't th- these were not episodes to to eat sort of treats in front of they are very um very different than i think people might have expected and like i got i got a very clear dose of that because olivia and i watched them ourselves the first night which we mandated we had people bought like you know asking us like oh, can't we have a viewing party as a mm-hmm. group and, and olivia were like if you if we hear you breathing, we might murder you. And so that we can't, that's just not going to happen. So we said no to that. But then we had people over on the Monday night, which was interesting. It was really interesting to see the reactions of people who were maybe less 
obsessively preparing for this return because they were quite different than Olivier and I's. So, and these yeah. are like what, like 20 year old film students? Uh, older than that. But it, uh, one of them was Jessica, who's been on the podcast before. Oh, okay. uh, and then a couple other friends uh, with sort of varying degrees of, of preparedness. Uh, and it was very interesting to see their reactions. I mean, basically, you could boil them down to. Like they they were interested by it and they found it very impressive, but it, they were a little shocked as to how not mm-hmm. you know sort of Twin Peaks it was. So uh, I I want to give myself a little bit of a pat on the back because I had I mean I had a lot of thoughts about what this might be like. Um, the two most successful thoughts in terms of what we actually got, I think one is that given you know Lynch's age and the fact that he hasn't made a film in a while, and also just based on what I was seeing about the enormity of the project. I was kind of thinking this was going to feel like a culminating work, like it was going to feature a little bit of everything. And that checked out. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit more later. The other thing was that when I wrote my piece in defense, in like preemptive defense of the new episodes, which has turned out, by the way, to be fairly um, not necessary, which is nice. um, I talked about how some of the some of the stuff in the interim since Twin Peaks came out that feels the most Lynchian to me is are those adult swim infomercials like um i mean too many cooks is the most famous one by far but i'm also a big fan of uh unedited footage of a bear and um this house has people in it um there's there's a couple others anyway just the the extremity and sort of the goofiness but also the horror of those of those shorts i think really gets at something and i was reminded of them repeatedly especially in the third and fourth episodes which again we can sort of break these down a little bit more specifically but i i think the best way we can go about this is just to sort of survey these episodes. And it's funny. I keep thinking, what do these episodes tell us about the new season? Like they're literally almost a quarter of the season. And I still feel like it's just a taste, you know, I feel like there's going to be so much, so much more. It's also going to shift a little bit when we move to getting one episode a week. I feel like it's going to have a very different quality than having four hours sort of put at our doorstep. Yeah. Um, watching, I'm sure people had similar experiences in the audience, but but watching four episodes of this back to back to back to back was an intense proposition. I mean, I, I feel like I sort of had to reserve my judgment about the third and fourth, particularly the last half of the third and then the fourth episode uh, until I could sort of take a break and go back and watch them again. Because, I mean, the pilot is, I'm going to say pilot, that isn't, I guess, premiere, we can call it, the two-parter. Watching that is, is an endeavor. Like, it is quite something. And, And I say this as somebody who I think, like Simon, I was, I was, didn't build up a lot of expectations about what these new season, what this new season was going to be. But the thing I was fairly certain of was that it was going to feel a little bit more like things like Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive than yeah. Twin Peaks. And so I was, I was more or less prepared for that. Even then, it's quite the experience getting through that first two hours. And and there's a bit of a shift. Like we can we can talk about this. I guess maybe break it down a bit more. But um, for my money, there is kind of a shift that happens sort of about halfway through the third episode, and you sort of move into a sort of different quality like the episodes take a bit of a different turn after that point Mm -hmm. um and i'm not sure that moving from those first two hours into that latter half it's like they're they're so different that it takes a little time to absorb them yeah um well when we talk about what people might reasonably have expected from a new and this is another thing is what do we call it like i i i'm of the opinion that it is not correct or appropriate to call it the third season. Yeah. And it's, I think there's a reason it's called like Twin Peaks or Twin Peaks The Return or Twin Peaks 2017 or whatever. Like it does not feel like a third season. That being said, I find it really one of the most interesting aspects to me of, of that first viewing was the way the show plays with 
Lynch and Frost uh, together again seem to have they have a really sly sense of like they know what a straight Twin Peaks sequel would have been like and they give it to you for a couple minutes at a time here and there Uh, I think most clearly in you know obviously the sequence that closes the Roadhouse sequence that closes episode two and then uh, the scene of Bobby in episode four I believe Mm -hmm. um, where he sees uh, Laura Palmer's picture and we get the Laura Palmer's theme for the first time but that's really it in terms of like really traditional Twin Peaks moments. Even our glimpses of old characters, most of which are are fantastic. It's been twenty almost twenty six years. You know these people are older, and there's oh there's a whole other set of things to talk about around that. So I guess where do we start? <laughs> that's the tricky. <laughs> well, part. I mean maybe since you since I feel like this is where you were going. Do we want to? Like for me, I think it's maybe worth describing some of the things that happen in this latter part that feel a little more like we're getting towards the quote sort of something resembling an original Twin Peaks uh, sort of mentality or something. Um, And then maybe we can loop back around to the premiere because the premiere is, and again, I think this is to Lynch's credit, is is very radically sort of putting in your face just how little this new thing might have to do with what you were expecting. And, yeah. I, and I think that matters, and, and we can come back to that. But but the third and fourth uh, episodes here, once you start to spend a little bit more time in the town of Twin Peaks, we're introduced to the character of the sheriff, uh, who is who's basically going to be replacing uh, Aunt Keen's uh, Sheriff Truman. Uh, and just as a little tidbit for people, Robert Forster, who plays the new Sheriff Truman, they originally wanted to cast him in the on-keen role uh, 27 years ago or 26 years ago, but uh, at the last minute, Forster had to book something else, and he turned it down, and, uh, and on-keen came on instead. So this is sort of like a return in a different kind of way. Um, anyway, I did but, not know that. Yes, uh, but once you get to this sort of stuff later in these last episodes, um, I think there is a real sense there where that's maybe the clearest uh, example of Frost and Lynch maybe knowing what people expect uh, from these episodes, particularly in terms of a certain kind of humor. But the way that they give it to you is is amped up to 11. I mean, it, mm-hmm. nothing here is nothing here is given without uh, maybe a side helping of like, oh, you want to spend time with these people in Twin Peaks? <laughs> then you're going to spend some time with these people in Twin Peaks. We are going to have every conversation in the sheriff's office is going to take so much longer <laughs> to get through than it Oh, and not just in the sheriff's sleep. office. I mean, maybe this is just like a formal thing worth mentioning is that the average scene length in this show compared to the original, it has to be three times. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I mean, there's so much less music. Um, there isn't, a, there's some very notable use of music, but there is not, um, you're not hearing a new battle of NTQ every two minutes sort of wallpapering everything. It's, it's much more sparsely uh, deployed. And then when you do get music, it's not really what you're used to. Uh, like we get, um, I believe in the first episode, um, or no, I think actually it's in the second um, we get that sequence of that uh, that slowed down pop tune, which I attributed to Lynch, but actually was was someone oh, else's. The, when, just... when McLaughlin's character arrives, yeah, in the, car, yeah. A, the, the song is called American uh, American Woman, mm-hmm. and it's just a, it's just a it's a female song pop tune slowed down to like fifty mm-hmm. or forty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, but it's funny how just a slowed down pop song just sounds like David Lynch singing and playing stuff. That's true. Um, we also, we get the Dave Brubeck like jazz. Yeah, uh, we get bit. Take Five, yeah. which is also an interesting music cue because when it when it first starts, I I, I always think it's uh, freshly squeezed, 
the uh, the the jazzy cue from the original song from the original show rather but nope it's dave brubeck no. oh and, right. and for people who don't know dave brubeck this is the part that this is the music that's playing over playing over good cooper's uh trip from the upstairs down to the kitchen which... well good cooper <laughs> aka mr jackpots aka oh god this is a whole other thing it's there's many things <laughs> um well maybe that's maybe that's as good a place as any to really start diving in is let's start with cooper yeah. Um, or whatever we we feel like calling him, because, you know, when the first episode opens after we get that prologue and then sort of the the drop of the of the theme song, I I, I have to say that like n- when you know in that split second that you are you are actually getting the original theme song again, that yeah. that was a very emotional. I know. Emotional moment. Me too. Very when overwhelming. The, when the music came back on, it, there was much squealing. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that it happens after like a split, like a couple seconds of silence, like, do do. Oh shit! Anyway, that <laughs> was like one of the one of the few like actively crowd pleasing moments. Um, true. And it really primes you for more of them, and then you don't get them. Anyway, <laughs> so we open on uh, the red room, except it's in black and white, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting choice. And we get Cooper, and he's older. And he's sitting there as he presumably has been for <laughs> waiting for this for this to happen for 26 years, just like the rest of us. Indeed. Of course, we don't really get Cooper in these episodes, which is another sort of audacious decision. We get, we, I mean, I guess I suppose we get a little bit of him at the beginning in the Red Room. But after that, it's all evil Cooper, who I, I, I keep thinking is Bruce Campbell. <laughs> and there's Dougie slash Mr. Jackpots mm-hmm. slash good cooper except not all there yeah um and who knows maybe there'll be more doppelgangers but it's i thought it was such a wild decision that like we're all expecting two coopers what about three coopers yeah exactly (laughs) when you cut to that third cooper like the the experience i mean again people i'm sure had a similar sort of experience watching that uh, premiere but like there is a real sense in which no matter how open your mind is Lynch always wants to crack it open a bit more. Like you think, you know, yeah. you think you're like, okay, I can handle this. Like things are crazy. We've now had 15 scenes in a row where I have no idea what's going on and who these people are and what's <laughs> happening. I can handle it. And then you get to that third Cooper and you're like, that's really when what? the other shoe drops. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think I, I, I totally had the same opinion. Like other people are going to be freaked out. Yeah. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I'm going to have this totally, <laughs> I have this totally under control. And then you get to third Cooper and I'm like, God damn it. Nope. <laughs> Nope, I don't got it. I don't got it. I also think it's funny that the, the, there's like it's a, a cast of 217, and Kyle MacLachlan still plays three characters. <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan is paying like 50 of those 217 <laughs> roles. Um, yeah. um, indeed. And just a shout out, and I'm sure we don't need to say this because I'm sure everybody already feels it, but a shout out to MacLachlan who is who is using this like maybe late career gift to just absolute full 100% yeah. extreme benefit. It's amazing. He's great in it. And it's worth noting because a lot of sort of cult figures, when they get older, they do tend to coast. And as is their right, you know, yeah. they've, they've, they've earned it. And, you know, McLaughlin's been, you know, he's had these sort of campier or more comedic roles and stuff like Desperate Housewives yeah. and Portlandia and stuff like that. But, there's nothing coasty about this and he's like i mean for basically the entirety of the fourth episode he's doing like this 
almost like French farce stuff. Yes. God damn it, Tati. I'm I know. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but, uh, and then, in, you know, obviously evil Cooper is a whole other thing. And the way that Lynch and McLaughlin use his new lower register mm-hmm. is really, really smart. Mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, like watching the, the third and fourth episodes again, the the variety and depth that um, McLaughlin gets out of these tiny slips, tiny snippets of uh, dialogue that he's given when he's, you know, because, you know, good, good Cooper, Mr. Jackpot's like only can sort of repeat the last couple of words that somebody else has said. And the variety and depth that he gets out of just these brief snippets is kind of astounding. Like that mixed with this very unusual physicality of what he's doing, like the way that he can only um, turn his head by turning his whole body and his eyes are never looking in quite the right place. Like there's very subtle ways that he manages to indicate like just how out of sync he is with the rest of the world is, is very different than somebody just being in a sort of mute daze. You know, like you can imagine that as a sort of very flat performance style and that's not at all what he's doing here. And it's kind of miraculous. Um, I, I don't know. I love that sequence in the, the kitchen with him at the end. Like I'm not, you know, I, I can see we can we can talk about that later, I guess, but like the this variety of the sort of comedic stuff that you get in the later parts of the episodes, I think of built into those kinds of like huge sort of comedic moves is the is the guarantee that not everybody is gonna like all of it. Like yeah. so, you know, it's of necessity that a lot of it is gonna fall flat for different viewers. And some of it fall flat for me, and I'm sure we will come back to talk about that. But um but like those moments with Cooper in that kitchen and the way that you can sort of see him in those final steps building towards letting the audience know that there is still some of Cooper in there, like his reaction to the um, the pancakes and then the, the, I am, the I am Dougie's coffee reverse shot where the coffee arrives. That was one of the more genius plays mm-hmm. on like audience expectations. I, I love that. Anyway. Oh, and speaking of audience expectations and maybe since we talked about the familiar in Cooper, we can talk about the unfamiliar elsewhere. I thought it was so uh, clever the way that, I mean, we end up spending a lot of the first episode with these two characters played by Madeline Zima and uh, Ben Rosenfield, and both of whom are unfamiliar to me, although they both looked really familiar. Um, that might have been the point, as in, like, they could have been in, like, a Gap catalog or something. Yeah, I think yeah. that might have been the point. Um, you may have noticed that the first glimpse we get of coffee is in, like, Starbucks cups, and they're lattes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which really, it, it really, it's there. I mean, I, I'm guessing it's there to say, Hey, there's going to be a coffee component, but also we're in New York. So let's, it's, and those between the, the coffee cups and the overhead shots of the New York city skyline and then the glass box and the waiting and the sitting with some, this random young guy. I mean, a lot of that first episode is spent just marooning you. Mm-hmm. It also, it also really hits pretty hard. From the get-go, the sense in which um, they're no longer the stylistic stuff that was so specific to the early show, which was this mix of the kind of 50s, 50s, 60s clothing with contemporary clothing, this sort of backwards-looking, nostalgic, like, suffusion of the image. That's well, gone. Well, maybe not nothing. Let's not forget Wally. Uh, it's true. <laughs> but there, I mean, and we'll, we'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, we but, have to but, come back But to even that. there, there is a very knowing sense in which it is anachronistic. It, it doesn't fit into the rest of the world. And, like... Here, I mean, I think the fact that, again, you're expecting Twin Peaks, you know, from the beginning, you're expecting, you're gonna, you're hoping that it's going to be battle lamenting music mixed with people in a diner wearing this sort of clothing. And instead, you get like a 20 minute sequence of 
um, people who, and this is nothing against the actors because I think they're both really great at, in these roles, but uh, as you said, sort of Ben Rosenfield and Madeline Zima, um, these people that really look like they could be anywhere or anything, which in, of its, in and of itself is a sort of comment on this like kind of, um, yeah, like uh, blandification of the sort of like the way that people look now. I mean, th there is a sense in which they are they are purposely just, this is just 2017. There's no embellishment. There's no like shifting things to, to make people sort of look backwards towards a nostalgic thing. Instead, everything is just sort of now and kind of cold. And, and the New York thing very much plays into that. They're yeah. like, we're literally not in Twin Peaks anymore. We're going other places. We don't even need to, we're not giving the town priority, which is, which is a pretty shocking thing in the show called Twin Peaks in the first bunch of scenes to be like, bye Twin Peaks. We're not staying here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not quite. I mean, we, we, very close to that, we do get one scene yeah. of Jacoby far away, which was just that was one of the first times that I thought to myself, "Oh man!" When when all we get is this glimpse of Jacoby puttering around, and like it's all in the middle distance. Mm -hmm. Maybe one thing we can think about because it does play into that first episode is, uh, and again, this is something I've seen other people comment on. Uh, this is this is a show being made in 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 2017, and and Lynch is not a filmmaker to rest on his laurels. And one of the major differences um, to this new series that is undeniable is the tr transition to at least partly digital effects. For instance, in one of the later Red Room sequences, when we get that digital zoom or wh however it is you could describe it, where the, the, the drapes sort of yeah. are discarded and the, and the space just expands and expands and expands. And the white horse. Yeah. And the white horse in the distance, like, that scene would have looked very different were it made in 1990. Uh, certainly would have not been the same scale. Obviously things like the, what do we want to call it? The thing that comes out of the box. We, in a, in a, oh, the, the, the black and whites are shaky. The smoke monster. Yeah, I think the smoke monster. Oh my God, let's not call it the smoke monster. <laughs> That's just too depressing. Um, the like androgynous, uh, androgynous ghost demon. I I don't. It's it's like a that thing is amazing. Um, it says something that that thing comes on and you're so shocked, and then by the time you get to the end of the premiere, you've kind of forgotten about it because you're so blown away by a million other things that come after it. Um, the the digital stuff. So I I just uh, turned in a piece for Cinemascope this morning. Um, that will hopefully be you know published sometime soon, so you can read that, and I'm sure I will say these thoughts much more eloquently in the written form than I'm going to say them here, but. Um, I can at least like rehearse some of my points about the digital stuff because I think, uh, and you know, again, cause this is uh, live and we have a little more leeway I could say. So there was, there was a couple of reviews that, um, it picked up on the digital stuff and not in a very, uh, kind way. I think there were, um, I'll just, it's a New York publication. You can find it yourself. Uh, that, that gives this, uh, that, that gives a very uncharitable reading, I think, to what, what Lynch is like using and exploring in terms of the digital stuff here. And, some of that is like, well, you know, I think there is going to be, of course, a reaction against this idea that Lynch as a filmmaker is so associated with a sort of like material, physical kind of like mucky quality mm -hmm. that all of a sudden it, feel, it feels kind of shocking for him to move into this space of a sort of crisp digital aesthetic. And like and that holds even just for the way that the images are shot, let alone the kind of CGI effects. Um and, and I think there are aspects of what he does in the premiere that, that don't always land. There, there are some digital effects that I don't love. But for me, what I actually found super fascinating was the way that Lynch totally leans in to the like uncanny crispness of mm -hmm. the digital images in order to create yet another set of sort of like aesthetic tools for him to be able to just throw you off. Like even in the black and white scene that opens... Um, 
the episode where Coop and the giant are in the, the this black and white red room. And again, with this sort of digital black and white, that already is a weird effect. And you're like, this is this doesn't feel quite right. Mm-hmm. And then Lynch ends the scene by turning uh, McLaughlin into like this flat kind of 2D image that yeah. sort of pops and crinkles out of existence. And he does that kind of stuff repeatedly, this like heightening of the two dimensionality of the digital image, like using the fact that everything is just created as digital pixels, which on the one hand can imply and represent depth, but on the other hand are, are really just pixels and you can move into the two dimensional like shockingly quickly. He does that repeatedly. Like it happens when... um Laura uh, in the red room sort of freaks out these some gods and then turns into this like weird image and sort of floats up off the screen. Yeah. Um, it happens again with maybe one of my favorite sequences in the premiere, which is uh, Lillard is in the jail and Lynch pans over to the right and you get an unnamed sort of like blackened figure who may or may not have some connection to the to the red room or this demon that may be possessing Lillard unclear but he fades out but his head remains as like as again a two-dimensional kind of thing that floats up off the screen as if Torian kind of spirit photography or Mm -hmm. something I mean I loved all of that yeah did 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 that figure not remind you of Mulholland Drive at all oh it totally totally does absolutely I also find interesting you know obviously people were freaking out about all the the sort of very in-your-face digital effects and certainly that initial effect of Cooper sort of folding away was very like, whoa, okay. But there are still a lot of practical effects or practical seeming effects. And I find that the way that they interact is also really interesting. Um, Particularly the stuff that we get sort of at the end of the second episode and the beginning of the third, Mm -hmm. which is just a, uh, there's some incredible imagery in there. Um, I think my favorite image just of the entire thing it's by far the like the least connected to the original series is after cooper after this these these shot these like shaky cam shots of of what really looks like kyle mclaughlin sort of like wriggling on a on a carpet of stars except oh i know i love those shots except it's it's shaking so fast that he seems like he really could be uh writhing i think is the word i was looking for and you know, it does not seem like any kind of fancy, fancy digital effects were involved. And then he gets dropped into this what seems like a bunker of some kind on like next to the ocean, which is like this really haunting color of purple. Again, this like this mix of of practical and digital stuff. I've never seen anything like it, including in Lynch films. Um, which, although some, I mean, obviously some of the individual effects are very reminiscent of even his early animation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the early stuff like the alphabet and the grandmother and stuff definitely play yeah. something of a of a kind of role here, as does Eraserhead. I mean, I, I think the thing that's interesting, and and uh, to walk back my vague complaint <laughs> about the person who was badmouthing the CGI, is like I, I do think that if you only watch the premiere, you maybe would have a different relationship to what he's doing with CGI than if you go into the third episode particularly. Because I think the third episode really puts paid to any like notion that Lynch maybe just doesn't know how to use CGI or like just doesn't work with it very well because I think that's really not true. By the time you get to the third episode, uh, not only this like amazing pink room imagery, all of it is great, but particularly the stuff with um, Good Cooper being kind of sucked into the giant electrical plug when his like head is sort of popping into it and getting sucked into it. And then his whole body moves into it and the shoes fall off at the end. And, and I don't know if that is a mix of, like, I assume there's a mix in there somehow of practical and digital, but like all of that has like a materiality to it and a tactility mm-hmm. to it that really proves that like it isn't an accident that Lynch's digital effects are tend towards the two dimensional. It's a choice. And so uh, for me that, that matters, but uh, anyway. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, speaking of collisions of practical and digital effects, like there's something so another like just as in your face as the digital stuff is we get right after that, the Garmon Bogia, mm-hmm. uh, this, this nasty brick of multicolored vomit, which like, <laughs> all right. The sequence with the. Uh... With Evil Cooper, or as somebody, some writer, I think for the AV Club, named him uh, Doppel Cooper, which makes me laugh. I like Doppel Cooper as a name, although it's not so easy to say. Um, the scene with him driving in the car where he uh, is is vomiting towards the end of it. Um, I the if you listen to if you watch it again, that scene just gives such a great indicator of how. 80 if not 90 percent of of the magic of lynch lives in the sound because like the images are are not pleasant right watching somebody barf through their hands are not pleasant yeah but so much of that is the sound is this like unbearable gurgling and like (laughs) churning and and it's one of those things where like again and just a weird thing that i know for some reason um for years like television censorship around kind of vomiting and stuff had less to do with the shot of it and more to do with the sound of it. That you couldn't have like sounds of people retching. This has been sort of a thing in censorship, but you could show it. Whereas here, it's like, not only is it retching, it's just like the most horrifying, revolting, like gurgling noises. I mean, Lynch is just enjoying that to so, so much of an extent that it can't, it makes me laugh actually that vomiting scene. Anyway, um, so yeah, he's definitely not leaving the materiality and the muck behind. He's very much like putting it, I think, into a kind of interesting tension with the CGI stuff, which I like. Um, for me, the, the two CGI bits that, that don't work, I, I didn't love the choice when, when we see the mutilated bodies in um, uh, the South Dakota kind of murder scene. When we see the mutilated bodies, uh, they've, Lynch has used CGI to sort of get it at the blood or something. And, and it really just takes away the weight from the bodies. They don't mm-hmm. look very real. And I, I don't like that. Uh, the other one that I wasn't crazy about is the sequence where the, the flashing nerve tree that is the evolution of the arm. When you get his doppelganger later in that episode, the doppelganger starts like spazzing out and freaking out at Cooper and is like non-existent and like is slashing at him. And then you get McLaughlin's head sort of stretched and the color has been shifted. And and that intercut particularly with the amazing shot of the floor where there's a practical effect as the floor goes yeah. out. Um, the floor stuff is amazing. And then it, unfortunately, I, I think it just, it even heightens how much the CGI stuff is not working and, and it has a complete lack of sort of weight to it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, those are the two I don't like. But the rest of it i think is really really interesting you mentioned the sound design and i have to say you i think you and i spent months prepping for bad takes but i again i've been i've been pleasantly surprised at how few bad takes there have been um so props to the internet but one of my favorite things to do since the show's come out has been to go on the twin peaks reddit and see what people's theories are I don't particularly care to theorize about like specific plot things or, you know, what, what to expect from stuff, but just the ways people have really dived into specific aspects of production, I found super interesting. And one of the most interesting was from the user sound is not noise. He says he's a sound designer. You may recall when we get that scene with the gramophone, dictaphone, whatever, uh, there's sort of like a crackling sound coming out of it. And we hear it throughout the, um, the end credits of the first episode. And what this guy did was uh, he took uh, like this second and a half sample of this of this crackling and slowed it down. He sort of experimented with the with the tempo of it, and he was able to he thinks figure out that what we're actually hear what we're actually hearing is a significantly slowed down slot machine handle, sound. Yeah, slot the, machine the slot machine handle crank uh, sound, and he he provides as as evidence possibly proof. 
the original sound and then the slowed down sound and then one superimposed over the other which is like a really i was just blown away at the level of investigation that's going on over at the twin peaks reddit and i'm not usually impressed with reddit so you know hats off to them i I there's something interesting there too about the fact that like lynch um because again the 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 reddit uh individual said uh you know like I forget, I think it's the Giants is something like listen, or he, he points out something yeah. about these sounds and then you get them five times. And this guy's response was, well, Lynch is not just doing that for nothing. Like there's some reasoning there, right? I mean, he's telling us to listen, so we should really listen. And and what I love is the fact that it pays off that this guy, like there is this sort of later connection to the, to the casino. Again, it's not really a connection that, that, um, bears on anything like plot or some secret core mystery and that's sort of the point and who cares like that's what i love about this stuff is like it's it's so much fun to not need to read it for that kind of answer but like from from what i've read so far i mean if you think back on the original series there was all kinds of stuff that people were just like throwing at the wall because you know we had all kinds of writers and directors working on the show and like you could make a thematic case for most of it or some of it but then there was other stuff where you were just like yeah, Josie's in a doorknob or like, and again, theoretically that came from Lynch. Maybe, who knows? Who Maybe, knows? Who knows? Yeah. But you know, there's, there was just stuff that seemed like, as I said before, like a game of broken telephone. Whereas like, there's nothing that we've had in these episodes so far that I haven't seen someone make an at least not half crazy mm-hmm theory or explanation for Mm -hmm. and maybe that's the kind of uh cogency we can expect with uh with lynch and frost writing every episode and lynch directing every episode like there was there were just individual things that that blew me away like when when i don't know if you noticed this but the way that the um the the sort of night driving sequence that introduces evil cooper really seems to mirror cooper's first appearance in the original series sort of like a dark mirror of same when i when when that when when that occurred to me when i read someone else notice it I was like, whoa. And I've, I've seen dozens of things like this. Yeah. It's just, there's, it seems like there's a level of, um, of like considered intricacy that was maybe not there in the original or like mm-hmm. not there to the same extent in the original series, like to the extent where there's, it almost, it, it almost feels like there's one-to-one or two-to-one connections for everything we're seeing. Well, I think, I think it's funny because the, you know, so many, so much of the response to the early show and people talking about the early show now is this idea that that Laura Palmer was the core mystery of the original show and this was what gave it its drive and this was what gave it its power and once you lost that, the show lost everything and all these sorts of things. Um, whereas, you know, realistically, Lynch and Frost at the time wanted the Laura Palmer thing to be uh, a skeleton on which they could hang many, many, many other things. And, and it didn't doesn't necessarily work, right? I mean, the Laura Palmer thing still became a central driving force. And I think what's interesting here is, you know, listening to Frost and Lynch talk about the process of them coming back to putting together this, we're not calling it the third season, but this new season of the Twin, of Twin Peaks, all of this stuff, uh, was them sort of saying, like, we needed something. We needed a story. We needed something that made sense. We needed a mystery that was going to bring this back together. And what I find fascinating is the way that it's playing out in these sort of first four episodes here is there is there is a sense of things needing to be solved but I love the way that the show is sort of pushing against any idea that it might just be one thing. It's like every new scene you get indicates that there, it's sort of like an unfolding network of like intricately right. connected mysteries that are all going to cross out and branch out in various ways, but they're never going to be reducible to sort of just, this is the story of Coop or something. You know? Yeah. Right. Oh, we have a body. Oh, but it's actually two bodies. Yeah. And then there's this whole other thing. And yeah. And then, Oh, and there's three Coopers. Exactly. Yeah. There's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's splintering and splintering and may not, uh, stop doing that anytime soon considering according to the cast list there's still like another oh 60 people we need to meet 
Have we already met 140 people? No, no. I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just guessing, but it just seems like there's... A, a, if you go to the Wikipedia page, as actors appear on screen, because none of them have, besides the people who've already appeared, um, you know, none of them have character names yet. And so you can, if you go on Wikipedia now before the, the, the fifth episode airs, you can see the amount, roughly the percentage of people that have shown up in, in, some, uh, in some respect. Um, and of course, it's it's impossible to know, like based on who's shown up, like who's even going to be prominent. Um, like I don't know if we're going to see much more of Jennifer Jason Lee, for instance. Um, yeah, that was that's an open question. That one. Yeah. Or, um, or um, what's her name? Ashley Judd. Ashley know? Judd, yes, yeah. as the as the secretary. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean. Yeah, so maybe this is a, a, as good a time as any to talk about returning characters besides Cooper um, and the way that the show uses them. Uh, I think that besides Jacoby, the first people we really see are the horns. Am I am I wrong? Uh, I think the horns are the first ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I mean, obviously having both original actors back is great. Um, having, to my recollection, not seen either of them since Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And that's really the first time, I mean, Jacoby to some extent, but really seeing them just as some old ass dudes is really kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. That being said, having Jerry as an old hippie is perfect. I also, I have to admit, like for me, a lot of those scenes where you get characters coming back, it's pretty impressive how well it works generally. I, like I, I have to, I, so for, as a, by way of example, I mean, if we cast our minds back to last year in a bit when the X-Files came back and like mm. main characters sort of coming onto the screen and you're like, Dear God, like it doesn't, and not in the sense that anybody's older looks different because who cares? I mean, Jillian Anderson is like the queen of all queens. It's like, there is no, <laughs> there is no problem there, but it's, it's more in the sense that people just clearly don't know how to slip back into the world. And it, and it reads very weirdly here. I, I found it kind of remarkable how little that felt to be mm-hmm. the case, even as we were all very much noticing a shift in tone and like a very clear departure on some things. None of it felt like people were having a hard time getting back into the world, which is something to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it helps that it's been so long mm. that like, if people are different now, it's okay. That's true. Um, and some of them are, and some of them really aren't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that works too. Um, it reminds me of something that, um, that I, I read about uh, Machinamic where she was saying that because Twin Peaks was sort of her first real job, um, she got used to working with Lynch and then she had a couple of rough years after that where she had to get used to working with people who weren't Lynch. <laughs> Um, and you, you kind of get the sense of it's just like putting on old gloves um, for a lot of these people or riding a bicycle. If I knew how to ride a bicycle. Sorry, everyone. I, I don't know how to ride a bicycle. That's the <laughs> thing you learn about me today. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think that the the horns return really works. Um, we sort of already mentioned the sequence, but the return of Shelley and then James. <laughs> this is a thing we need to talk about. I was not expecting like one of the most moving moments of like all four episodes to be seeing James again mm-hmm. and just seeing how, first of all, seeing him smile, seeing James Marshall smile is sh- shocking. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's, I think he maybe smiled twice in the entire original run yeah. in like four hours of screen time. Um, and here just seeing him with that big, with that big smile and his hair is quite different, but he really, his face is quite similar. Mm-hmm. And then having Shelley, who he never really interacted with that I can recall. No, I, I tried to recall that. I don't think they ever had a single scene together. Yeah, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they're the ones to interact and and her saying James has always been cool, which is funny for us because James has clearly never been cool. I know. My, my reaction to that was uh, she says that line. Shelley says that line. 
James has always been cool. And the whole collective Twin Peaks fandom goes, him? (laughs) Really? But as you say, it sort of doesn't matter. Like you have that laugh when you're like, really? Always been cool? But it doesn't matter because it's still, despite that, is very affecting. And you're quite, you're left quite intrigued by this new James. You're like, who? Now I want to know this sort of like very different sort of like vulnerable kind of James. Like it's a very different persona. Yeah. Yeah. And for reasons, I don't think this is accurate, but the most sort of like haunting speculation that I got because there's a reference to a motorcycle accident is that maybe Donna died in the accident. Oh, that's interesting. Because we, we talked about this at one point, like the other, there are other Haywards on the cast list. So something is going to come back with the Haywards. Um, I was, there was some question as to whether you had said Donna was just going to be recast. And I, I was maybe hoping for like Naomi Watts to turn up as Donna. Now I'm hoping maybe Laura Dern will be Donna, but I, I don't know. Maybe not. I actually want Laura Dern to just have her own character. But, I, I would. I, yeah. Yeah. I've seen other people say maybe Laura Dern is Diane, which please no. Oh dear Please God, don't no, make Laura no Dern Diane. a secretary. Let's, let's have no Diane anyway. I don't want that at yeah, all. Yeah. I finally watched the missing pieces after our last episode and oh. the Diane scene. I just not It's like. not good, it's right? Not good. There's a reason why they cut it out. <laughs> I know. Um, but anyway, I am very excited about Laura Dern coming back. Uh, have we, so who are, who are other main characters that we maybe want to cover that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, well, Hawk. Hawk, Hawk is yeah. important. Hawk yeah. gets as much to do in these four episodes as he did basically the entire original yeah. run, which I mean is partially owing to the fact that their you know Aunt Keen is gone and they want sort of a familiar face, I suppose, in the in the office to um to sort of get you back into that space. And of course his heritage is important for some I, reason. Yeah, it is a little, <laughs> I'm like, really Mark Frost? Cause it, I, I, again, of, I have to admit, and people who are serious Twin Peaks fans are going to be angry at me for this, but I could not get more than a third of the way through the secret history of Twin Peaks. I just didn't <laughs> like it. And, uh, I'll, I'll go back and finish it one day, I'm sure. But, um, I don't know, Frost's uh, like narrating of the history of America, the history of Twin Peaks and this sort of like magical making of, of First Nations people is like holding this sort of magical relationship to Twin Peaks. It's dubious. And again, I, I didn't yeah. I didn't read the whole book, so I, I shouldn't be bad mouthing it and maybe it gets better. But I when that line came on, I was a little like, Ooh, this might not be great. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff with, with Lucy is good. Like just yeah, her true. sheer awkwardness at yeah. even discussing it. Uh, was good, um, although I had some issues with some other stuff with Lucy. Mm. But, uh, I mean, just having Hawk get stuff to do, having Michael Horse get stuff to do yeah. is, is so great. And some of the obvious highlights of uh, of these episodes are his phone cars- conversations with Catherine Coulson, yeah. which opens up another thing we need to talk about, which is aging and dying and infirmity, um, which has always, in a way, been uh, a part of Lynch's stuff, but here, just seeing everyone so much older and so much uh, frailer, even people like uh, Miguel Ferrer, who, of course, is now uh, no longer with us, he's just clearly, he's not the man he was. The Colson stuff is heartbreaking. Like, the, the, the it, uh, even the first one, uh, which isn't, isn't so rough, the first, like, in terms of the content and the dialogue, but even the first one, when you cut to the shot of Colson with her hair, having lost her hair and wearing the oxygen tank, I'm like, I just, I mean, I've, you know, everybody, if you're of a certain age, you've lost somebody to cancer in your life. And it's like seeing that on the screen. I actually think there's something really important there, even even regardless of the specificity of Colson. There's something important there. Uh, as a side note, like I was walking because I'm in Toronto, which is where Simon lives, how we're able to record this together. Um, I was like walking down the street in Toronto and um, 
seeing, you know, like large numbers of people uh, with sort of disabilities, like walking around, panhandling in some instances, all of this stuff. And I had this moment where I sort of thought to myself how, how frustrating it can be to read reviews of Lynch where people talk about Lynch showing illness, infirmity, disability, as if this is just some weird fetish of Lynch, mm -hmm. as if it's like he's creating some spectacular world that's populated with people with disability or death or disease. And like, like, I, have you guys looked around at the world? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, but this is not him spectacularizing this or create, like, I'm like, this is, these are, there are people with disability and like difficulty and like anything. This is a real part of the world. And I, and I think showing, um, Colson like in late stages of cancer is absolutely part of that. Um, and then of course you get the second phone call with her where she's saying goodbye to Twin Peaks and the audience. And it's like, uh, it's, haunting and very sad <laughs> and it's so such an ambush too because at that point at that point you're still thinking okay it's super weird i'm getting acclimated yeah. and probably the emotional stuff is going to come later but nope you're getting ambushed with it like right off the bat I, I can't believe i mean she passed in september of 2015 she was one of the first i think they were her scenes were some of the first ones that they filmed they must have been basically yeah. just as they were starting filming yeah yeah, um, that's incredible. I, I I didn't know when I sat down to watch it. I mean, I knew, I knew that she'd passed, but I didn't wasn't aware of the timeline, and it must have been very very early. On the subject, which is, I've sort of already mentioned this, but uh, Lucy and Andy are obviously a big part of these episodes. Some of that stuff works, and some of it is not so good. Um, they've really doubled down on Andy's um, quirks, mm -hmm. his uh, his his not his slowness, mm -hmm. his uh, general lack of wit. Mm -hmm. um, which is fine, but they've also seemingly infected Lucy with it mm -hmm. to an extent that I don't recall her having before. And when I say recall, I mean I just watched those episodes like last week, so I, I know that she didn't. Mm -hmm. um, which I guess is a decision. Again, some of that stuff works. The thing with the cell phone it was a bit silly. It was a bit much. Like I understood. Like I kind of appreciated it as a comment on like the the town not evolving and like mm -hmm. the and the show having to deal with technological adva advancement, even in these sort of archaic spaces but the way that it was played it was just like totally at lucy's expense mm -hmm. i wasn't such a huge fan of yeah i mean i don't know for me that that didn't necessarily read as anti-lucy although i guess it could um but i the, i think there is overall the scenes with andy and lucy the first time around watching them both the cell phone stuff even the chocolate bunnies uh sequence a lot of that i was like i'm not sure that i love all of this uh, just, <laughs> just and and Again, I will say that was because watching it all in a rush, like after the pie, after the yeah. premiere and everything, it's such a dramatic shift in tone that you really it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work in that regard. Like coming out of Lynch's like eraser head ish, like we're in this sort of new nightmare of 2017, and then you radically switch back into this space of Twin Peaks where the kind of slowness and the goofy like aw shucks quality of it has been has been amped up and amped up. And again, I think it I think it's all actually kind of masterful i mean i think lynch and frost are very aware of it they're doing it very purposefully um and there is sort of again this meta level of, of joking about um well this is, we know that this is maybe what you think you used to like and so we're mm -hmm. going to give it to you but we're going to give it to you times 10 um and, and then it becomes sort of unbearable i mean this is the same this is the same kind of thing that lynch has always done right of like slowing things down dragging them out like seeing how they work when you sort of spread them over a longer thing mm -hmm. and and uh, Rewatching those scenes, they worked a little bit better for me the second time, but yeah. So, I mean, I know not a, a returning character, but since we're already talking about Andy and Lucy. <sighs> so, I read plenty of people guessing when they saw Michael Sarah in the cast list, oh, he must be Andy and Lucy's kid. And I thought, 
you know, that they could do that, but that's just a little bit too obvious. <laughs> and then, nope, they sure did it. And he's sure doing Marlon Brando in the Wild Ones. And it's sure going to happen for four and a half minutes. And I'm sure going to absolutely lose my shit the first time I watch it. And then also every subsequent time. And then also whenever I think about it. I know. I keep thinking <laughs> about Wally and like bursting out laughing just <laughs> random places. Like I, the Wally sequence is is maybe my favorite sequence of of that of certainly of the fourth episode i i i think they nailed that like that that is one of those examples again though of like a kind of kind of gonzo comedy that either really works for you or really doesn't because i know there are a lot of critics out there who think it's stupid and like hated it which i don't understand at all i loved it you know as great as uh michael Sarah obviously is in that scene um, I think it's really because of Forster that it works. Mm. Um, just those, it, I mean, we we have the 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 cameras just trained on Sarah, who I I would I was hearing some speculation about this on uh, on our our good friend uh, Ethan's podcast about how like, how long did they do this for? Like, is it did, are we did it cut when they cut or was Sarah just riffing for another like nine minutes? I want to know what the missing pieces edit of that scene was. You know, those occasional cuts to Forster. That make you think the scene is 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 winding is, is up. ending <laughs> like <laughs> like no. yeah, oh that's nice Wally that's nice is what his face says but nope you're gonna get another minute he's gonna keep talking about crossing the country and and his childhood bedroom the punchline that punchline of you get this long long pause in the middle of that <laughs> and you and you're led to believe that there's gonna be some kind of dramatic development when he says I've also decided because I know this is of grave concern to my parents. <laughs> The childhood bedroom reveal is is genius, and I, and I actually think that's one of those instances where you should we should give a fair amount of credit to people like Mark Frost because that is some genius writing. And knowing Lynch, I I would be surprised if Sarah was allowed to riff. I Lynch is pretty strict about like following what's written down, mm-hmm. so I, I would be surprised if there was any additional stuff there. I just I think that's genius writing, genius directing, genius <laughs> performance. I uh, I like Michael Sarah a lot, but it's kind of funny to think no, he's the one actor who was allowed to riff <laughs> of, of this <laughs> maybe, entire cast. Maybe they let him do that. <laughs> Um, but I get, there's also some truly great, like self-reflexive comedy in there. Like this idea of them very clearly acknowledging the sort of, of, um, a stereotype is not the right word, but like archetype that James, the character of James Hurley was meant right. to be kind of like embodying this sort of backwards looking nostalgia that James was very seriously supposed to be this like bad boy with a good heart character that then Wally Brando turns up as like the 16th like generation of, and now it's just this absolute cartoon is perfect. Like that is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to watch that scene a few more times before, before the next episode. Um, cause yeah, I was, if you could have seen me, Kate, I was just, I was, cr- I was in tears yeah. by the end of that sequence. I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, that was de- an absolute highlight. Um, and uh, I mean, since we're talking about sort of the extremes of the show, I mean, one of the things that really surprised me about these episodes, given that Lynch said, uh, this, uh, this new season, whatever you want to call it, um, wasn't going to have much in the ways of sex and violence. Boy, these episodes had plenty of both of those things. Yeah. Um, again, some of which uh, I think really works. Some of which mm, mm. not so sure about. Um, I mean, in my piece and like uh, you know elsewhere, I've talked about like sort of the limitations of you know social justice based criticism. But you know, I, I think the last, especially the last ten years, has really trained us to watch for certain things. 
And it is really jarring when like <laughs> when like the first black woman it to, to appear in like in like David Lynch history. Yeah. Uh basically uh is, you know, is a prostitute who gets completely naked, basically. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that because I read a couple of reviews that said something similar and like, you know, if, if Lynch never has black actresses in it, then it's going to be a problem when the first African-American actress is a prostitute. And I was like, I, I agree with that up to a point. Yeah. Um, but I, I would reiterate Jessica's uh, very astute point from when she was on the podcast, which is that this is maybe why there's sometimes a defense to be mounted of the fact that Lynch actually doesn't incorporate people who are not white sometimes into these roles because it is so clearly going to be a trap then in that regard because realistically so many people on Lynch's shows are not um shall we say like living the good life I mean there are so many characters that are involved Mm -hmm. in in crime in anything I mean like the the figure of, of of the prostitute is a figure who is not uncommon in Lynch's films right I mean let's make that clear there are plenty of white actresses who have played prostitutes in Lynch's films and so it's like part of me then wants to say well it doesn't, we shouldn't automatically not like for me. I also think Jade, who, by the way, I love the woman who played Jade, I think absolutely nails it. I think she completely gets this sort of like Lynchian mix. What's her name? That's a uh, Nefessa Williams. Okay. Nefessa Williams. She absolutely nails this sort of Lynchian mix of like, uh, humorous repetition that all takes place at the same level like the way Mm -hmm. she's sort of constantly saying Dougie what is happening Dougie why is your hair like that like she just nails these lines (laughs) I think she's fantastic I also think she is someone who seems to be pretty okay and like doing all right compared to a lot of the other um like let's say white actresses who are playing roles like the um woman who uh is the sort of pill addict who turns Mm. up in a kind of empty suburban house or the gambler woman this like filthy gambler woman later i mean i so for me i I, i'm i i actually will give lynch some credit on Mm -hmm. that one but anyway yeah and it's it's also early um, exactly it's very early in in proceedings to figure out where uh where these sort of depictions are going but i will say like i it it was jarring to me Mm -hmm. uh just just because i wasn't i wasn't expecting let's be i'm gonna be totally honest i wasn't expecting to see a black actress at all like I really yeah. wasn't uh, just because I've seen most other Lynch things and it's yeah. and it's uh, it's just not, you know, his his his, you know, th- we're talking about like a 71 year old white dude and his pr- similarly old white writing partner. Like we should. Well, so maybe let's just get into this right now because we know that it's coming. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, let's rip the bandaid. We're, I think we're both. I personally have been wrestling with this for the last four days, uh, like deciding if I'm going to write about it in the cinemascopies or not all this stuff. And maybe viewer, maybe listeners can guess where we're going. But this is the character of Tammy Preston. Yes, uh, good old Tammy Preston, played yeah. by Krista Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know who Krista Bell is, she's a musician. She actually has an album coming out uh, reasonably soon that she worked with with Lynch on, if I if I re- recall correctly. Um, she, and she's worked with him on other stuff. She sings the uh, the end credit song in 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 Inland yes. Empire. Yeah. Um, to my knowledge, she's, she doesn't really have any acting experience. Which is not a problem. Uh, you'll recall plenty of people in the Lynchverse had uh, little to no acting experience before they took on, in some cases, very significant roles in Lynch things. But um... <laughs> <laughs> but dot 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 dot. Um, yeah, the Christabel stuff is rough, and like again, acknowledging there's plenty of show left to go. Like maybe she'll improve. Maybe the character will improve. But yeah, the scenes with with her and um, and Lynch and Ferrer are rough. They're not good, and I I don't 
understand. Like, this is just sort of what I'm left with at the end is I don't understand. And and some of it is her, some of it is her performance ability, um, to be fair. But it's also the writing. Like, she's, yep. she's very much from the beginning sort of given this role where she's exposition mouthpiece uh, and then is constantly told to sort of leave or not be part of the actual conversations that matter. She's only there to like deliver this exposition information and then leave. Or and to we'll fall get... asleep in the car. Oh, exactly. Or fall asleep <laughs> in a bizarre choice. But the other thing that I, I find just very odd is this, this choice of having her play this hyper feminized performance stuff from the beginning. Like the way she's in these very tight suits. She's, she's, I mean, honestly, like if there was a small child next to her, she walked, her hips would kill them. Like this hip <laughs> swinging that she's doing is, and, and I, and my first thought when this is unfolding in the show is I thinking, well, so maybe there's like an interesting move there to be made with this idea that like women in, in reality in those kinds of professions really have to lose any remnant of like overt femininity because it, it marks them out as different. And so maybe here there's this sort of interesting exploration of this idea of like, we're going to hyper feminize her and it'll, and we're all going to notice like how much that stands out and how weird that is. And then you quickly realize that that really is not what is going on. And instead the show and possibly Lynch himself just seems to be like ogling this like loving it and reveling in it and and of course like i'm sure people notice this but this is most obvious in the scene where ferrer and lynch are talking outside and she's there briefly and then lynch sends her off to do something uh and the camera reframes literally yeah pans to, down. to capture her butt as she walks off and ferrer makes a comment saying oh now i feel better after seeing her butt you know and it's <laughs> so we're paraphrasing here. We're paraphrasing, but it is so inexplicable because I, like I, this, that actually really bothered me and it, and it strikes a chord because I feel like, um, as a female film critic writing about Lynch, there is, uh, some, some mind traps like they're there, right? They, yeah. for years, I feel like I've been fighting this battle saying Lynch is not sexist. Lynch is, Lynch is pro-woman. Lynch is trying to really find like interesting ways to thematize the problem of men ogling women through images and women being made into these images that are consumable by others and all of this stuff. And then to have him participate in this shot where he is ogling a woman where there is, as far as I can tell, almost no sort of contextual or, format or formal clues that give you a hint that there is any kind of self-indictment or anything there is is hard for me. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and they... The other weird thing is like uh, Lynch and Ferrer um, as Albert and um, and Gordon Cole, they keep discussing like, oh, do we trust her? Yeah. Like, is she credible? Is Which she is, competent? I she, mean, she's yeah. so beautiful, but is she competent? Like this, it's just very weird. Yeah, it's it's super weird. Uh, and it's it, it, it also blends really weirdly with the Denise scene, um, which... Like honestly, that's about as good as I could have hoped that for that scene to go in 2017. Yes. Uh, like some of it is good, some other aspects really not so good. Um, my, my takeaway is could have been worse. I guess it it could have been, but also like could it have been? I mean, I so so the Denise scene, uh, and then and then we should. I feel like we should loop back to some of the stuff at the beginning because I feel like it's. <laughs> it, I feel like these things. Critic, as critics, we feel like we need to acknowledge them because they stick out so yeah. weirdly in what is otherwise a really masterful four-hour set of images. Um, and these just feel like really weird missteps that need to be acknowledged. But uh, the Denise stuff, I I love one part of it, right? When Cole gets that speech where he says, um, you know, yeah, he's, fix he's, their hearts or die. Fix their hearts or die. Like, I mean, I want that on a bumper sticker in response to like all bigotry and crappiness everywhere. I think that is an amazing rallying cry. But that being said, the rest of the scene involves 
again, Denise as a trans character having to having Cole bring up and re-narrate to her the fact of her transition, which is is like a common complaint about uh, transgender representations that they always end up foregrounding the fact of a transition rather than simply that this is a person living their life now and like, do we need to go back to that? That's one aspect of it. And then also the fact that she, everything, like every line she's given basically gets boiled down to some kind of stereotypical sort of gender thing. Like this stuff about her hormones, needing, like, yeah. well, the hormones thing is the most egregious one. And it, it's just a joke that does not work. Like the, the reverse shot back to Cole where Cole is like, oh, and he makes a gesture like, don't talk about it is cringeworthy. Like it's really unpleasant. But even more generally than that, just this idea that like her talking about like, you know, like being wanting to be pretty and like her femininity. It's just like this, this very hyper like focus on her gender. Whereas mm-hmm. Denise used to be someone who just was awesome at her job and like was really yeah. great at getting stuff done. And it seems promising at first because she is in a, in a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's honestly the most jarring moment wasn't even in the scene. It's in the credits mm-hmm. when Denise is the only character in the FBI who doesn't get her title. Mm-hmm which is really weird because she's above most of the other characters. It's true. There's, there's a, there is a bit of a sense there in which you get the sense that they like Lynch and Frost are aware that they're supposed to be doing something, but they're just not quite sure how to do it. Yeah. Like that. There is, there is a little bit of that. The and whole again, scene is super uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Like in, yeah. Anyway, it's unfortunate, but you know, had to be pointed out, but I, I agree also that like when I think back on, on the four episodes, like I really am just overwhelmed with like gratitude and yeah. amazement that I think it makes the stuff that doesn't work sort of stick out stick more. Out. Exactly. And there is, and again, I think this is maybe the caveat that people listening to this will hear a lot, which is that I feel like we're, we're put in a very awkward position trying to make judgments about what is and isn't working here when realistically we're seeing like under 25% of this whole product. Yeah. Like I, I really do think, and I really hope, there is a way in which the Krista Bell stuff is going to be recuperated by by larger <laughs> kind of formal and, and structural developments going forward. And I am willing to give Lynch that credit. I think that will be the case. But um, for now, it just is a little hard. I, I also feel like, oh, I really hope there are so many excellent actors here and so many great characters that I... I don't, I'm, I'm going to say right now, I really hope Tammy Preston is not, does not become a main character on which much plot is hung. Yeah. Cause I don't well, want it's, that to it's, happen. It really is stunning that you've got a cast with like Naomi Watts and Jennifer Jason Lee and Ashley Judd and all these like amazing actors. And then like, <laughs> like I'm, it's, 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 it's a little bit mean. We apologize, yeah. but like it is, everyone must think it's a little bit glaring. Yeah. Um, anyway, as you said, there's so much time, so many hours left uh, in the show left for them to do who knows what with, but I'm trying to think of uh, specific other things. I mean, there's so much we haven't discussed. I know, I'm having is, a hard time thinking. I think this is hilarious that we're trying to do four hours of this stuff <laughs> in, in like a one hour. Yeah, well, that's as... why, that's why I'm, 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 you know, I think the nice thing about the format of the new season, as we've seen it, is that, you know, there are no, with one exception, which we can maybe talk about, the soap elements of the mm-hmm. show are pretty much gone. Are gone, yep. Um, this is no longer sort of a twisted soap opera. Mm-hmm. So far, anyway. So far. Um, with the exception of the one scene of Matthew Lillard's wife, mm-hmm. um, who, as you noted, is actually played by a, a famous socialite. Like a New York socialite. Yeah. yeah. Um, more than an actress, which I thought was a really interesting touch. Um, but beyond that scene, like really the soapy aspects are, are gone. Uh, and there's a lot, I mean, th- there was some discussion of it uh, in advance as being like an 18 hour movie, which is kind of true and kind of not true. Yeah. Um, they do some interesting things with format. 
Uh, the fact that these second, third, and fourth episodes all end with musical performances at the Roadhouse, which um, I think works fine for now. Um, I don't know how I'm going to feel if it happens for the next 14 episodes. I, no. I can't imagine that it will. I also, part of me wonders with those Roadhouse things, uh, and here's a shout out to awesome Jessica listening. Jessica and I like had I, like a kind of long discussion disagreeing about some of this stuff with the Roadhouse. Um, I, I think there are, there are some fans who maybe are going to not love the, the Roadhouse sequences because... In a lot of ways, they they very clearly feel like you feel more Julie Cruz's absence because mm-hmm. this is a very different setup that's happening here. These are not these are not achieving the same kind of like effective quality that the Roadhouse scenes used to have, and I and I think it matters. I mean, I think and I I I enjoy them particularly the one at the end of episode two. I I quite like. Yeah. I've, I've grown to really like it. The other ones I'm still fine, just fine with. But I, I do think it matters that like Lynch is is now using this space of the Roadhouse that used to be kind of like a metaphysical sort of like gateway through love and emotion and the Brack Lodge and Red, yeah. all of this stuff like, and now it's really just a bar filled with twenty year olds watching like the latest kind of dream pop yeah. band and you know? forty year olds watching twenty year olds. Yes, exactly. And like it, it, that stuff for me really plays in with. Um, the general move away from the kind of like stylistic touches of this being this sort of nostalgic space. And instead it really is just like we're in 2017 and this is like the world as it is now. And like, and and in a lot of ways for me that plays into maybe the larger sense that I I think I mentioned at the beginning and and maybe I'll just bring it up now, Um, which for me is, I think there's a kind of overall movement happening here across the premiere and then into the later two episodes where it matters that I think Lynch and company here have sort of lost those touches that were so common to the early Twin Peaks, which are these sort of like overflowing spaces of a sort of like love affect. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of that is just gone now. And, and in its place is um, on the one hand, these sort of spaces of like horror and like coldness and, and fear. And then on the other are these sort of overt humorous scenes, which we get in Twin Peaks. Right. And so like more and more over the course of these episodes, it feels like, we're going to get a scene with evil Cooper or in New York or whatever that's upsetting and really frightening. And then we're going to go to the, a scene in Twin Peaks and it's going to be this sort of relief of kind of comedy. And the Roadhouse mm-hmm. scenes function in the same way where it's like a relief at the end of these sort of like long and brutal stretches. But what we don't really have are, yeah, these sort of moments of kind of love. I would say the one exception is the truly stunning sequence with Bobby, which mm-hmm. you mentioned at the beginning, um, yeah. where we get Bobby reacting to Laura's photo For me, though, even there, there is a very clear circumscription of that because Bobby, and again, Dana Ashbrook deserves all the credit in the world, and I hope so much that he is a major character going forward because he just nails that sequence Mm -hmm. where he comes in and he starts weeping over the photo, but it is so extreme and it's so rapid that it's almost funny. Like, it's almost... Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, that, he he just turns on a dime. Yeah. And and, and Laura Palmer's theme comes in, And Robert Forster's looking at him like I, I'm not quite sure what's happening. Um, yeah, I mean, there's it's it's an, it's an amazing sequence, and yes, um, Dana Ashbrook is. I mean, the fact that they that he's a cop now is great. Awesome. That was a really smart decision. Um, I mean, I'm I I think I I really think that everything they did with so far with sort of the the main denizens of Twin Peaks coming back, I think they've nailed it all. Which is, I I, th- I think probably the hardest part. I mean coming back after 26 years with these same actors that's basic i'm not gonna say it's never been done before but like it's 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 exceedingly rare and it's even rarer to do well Mm -hmm. and so far it's it's all been quite good although there's still some some major characters we haven't seen yet but as i was going to sort of segue into earlier i think that the nice thing about the format 
is that, you know, if there's something we don't address this week, which of course there's tons of things, um, you know, I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity to discuss. We haven't talked the about the Red Room at all yet, which yeah, is we crazy haven't. because the Red Room is amazing. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. Well, maybe we can do that because I, I almost wonder if we haven't seen the last of it now yeah. because it kind of comes apart. I guess. Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, here, let me let me finish the one line of thinking that I wanted to get on the record, and then and then we can dive into the red room. Do um, it. So the thing the with this sort of Bobby and this like circumscription of his reaction, which seems to be the one sort of like overt expression of kind of love, but it's here it's here it's almost funny again. For me, the reason I think it matters that you get you get none of that sort of love stuff, and it's and it's sort of formally. Um, mapped onto and mirrored by the fact that we've lost Good Cooper, which I think is a huge, radical departure from the original show, right? Like, yeah. not just stylistic, but this idea that this sort of moral rudder and emotional rudder of the original show is just gone in these new episodes. Um, I think it it ends up working really interestingly in the sense of, like, even if we acknowledge that, that Lynch's representational politics sometimes are a little like, ooh, you're just not sure about them, um, there is a sense in which his, his, like, effective sense of, like, the political landscape is is absolutely spot on. Like, this idea that, like, these these people that are supposed to stand in as these sort of heroic figures of love and optimism and joy are just gone now. We just yeah. don't have those people. And like that actually I think really matters is like a gesture for what it means to bring back a show like Twin Peaks in 2017. It's like, you know, now we're just, it's just all of these sort of like 20 year olds in like current clothing, like wandering around. I'm like, we don't have, we don't even, we maybe don't even have these sort of like conservative backward looking fantasies anymore of what mm -hmm. America might be or could be. We're just sort of left in this cold space with nobody to tell us what to do. And the log lady is dying. I mean, there, there's something really brutal about that. And I think it's political and I think it's really smart. So anyway, that's that point I wanted to make, but yes, <laughs> talk about the red room. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Um, as I mentioned before, sort of this is a, sort of a, a semi-digitized red room, which is um, fascinating to see. I mean, uh, things are a little different. Obviously, um, Michael Anderson is not in the show for reasons. I keep forgetting that. Oh yeah, we did get a seven-second appearance by Ray Wise mm -hmm. um, in those scenes. Uh, I mean, the one thing about the red room sequences that um, I don't know if it's not—I don't know if it's wrong—but I did. I did notice that the. Um, the way that people speak in the red room and sort of communicate is a lot clearer than it was in the original series. Mm -hmm. Like, and they also use idioms like act like regular idioms that people use. It's, it seems to be a lot less cryptic, which again, I, I sort of map that to the fact that the, even though the show seems a lot more chaotic and sort of wild this time, it seems like those sort of supernatural elements seem a little bit more legible this time around. Um, so yeah, it's a strange mix of like familiar and unfamiliar. There's there's some really interesting stuff, and I'm sure someone out there who is who's more technically minded than me could write this like paper or history. But there is a sense in which um, the fact that the '90s uh, red room stuff would have been would have been sound mixed on on analog tape versus what Lynch is able to do now with digital sound mixing and sound mm -hmm. recording, there is a real noticeable difference going on there. Yeah. Um, uh, for anybody who's interested, there's a really fabulous set of books out there by a French theorist named Michel Chion who writes a lot about Lynch and sound and just sound and cinema in general, and they're fascinating. Highly recommend. Anyway, um, so what is what is interesting here is I think that Lynch is really leaning into some of this digital sound stuff, and, and again, it, it mirrors the CGI stuff in the sense of a kind of crispness of, of digital stuff that's very different than analog, which tends to have, even at its best, in a good way, it tends to have a kind of muddy warmth to it that the digital doesn't. And it's, it's heightened in the new Red Room sequences, uh, and I'll give credit to Olivier uh, for pointing this out, 
that there is almost no music in the new Red Room sequences, which is a really big departure from the original Red Room ones, which were generally music stuff. Um, and the anyway, so you get that. You get this sort of backwards talk that's a little more crisp, a little different feeling than it used to. You also, and for me, I, this is amazing, um, Lynch is doing some really interesting stuff with running the sounds of people moving backwards, mm -hmm. which I do think you get some of in the original Red Room, but it isn't nearly as like prominent in the kind of experiences it is here, where you get like a long sequence, for example, of Cheryl Lee walking across the room and, and the sounds of her clothing moving are being run backwards. And it is so uncanny and creepy. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's some amazing stuff that Lynch is doing with the voice of the arm now. The, the introduction of the arm where he says, I am the evolution of the arm and I sound like this. And he's like... <laughs> And, it, and it's a ver like for people who maybe didn't make this connection, it's a version of the when you first at some point meet Michael Anderson in the original thing and he does the like, yeah, and now it's been like shifted and is perfect. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 arm tree thing also is a weird mix of digital and practical yes. stuff that I'm not exactly sure where the line is, mm -hmm. uh, which means that they did it right. Besides the I mean, there's. I feel like th what we really get in these episodes is, you know, the in, the red room kind of falls away and shifts and burbles like the ground mm -hmm. does that thing, and and the the curtains wave and sort of go out in, into the into the black, and we get the white horse in the distance, and then we get it's it feels like we get this whole cosmology mm -hmm. of other places. I mean, literally, we end up in space, which is just like, and it's not it's not an expensive looking space effect. It's it looks like like Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Mm -hmm. Um, when we get out to sort of the outer part of that shack, yeah. I don't even know how to describe. I mean, that stuff is really out there. Yeah, all of it is really out there. I also love the red room sequence where Dougie gets sucked into the red room in uh in the third episode, <laughs> and then his hand sort of shrink melts and the ring falls yeah, off, yeah. and then his head pops and it's smoke, and there's this amazing again, sort of cheesy animation of the like golden ball floating up and zooming around and this, mm -hmm. that's all great. And it's like, again, Lynch using CGI in a way that's sort of knowing it's like, yeah. he knows that that looks a little cheesy, but it's great. Well, and maybe that like, maybe the final point I'm going to try to make, cause we should think about wrapping yeah. up soon so that you can eat before you, you're screening, <laughs> um, is like when, when Twin Peaks premiered in, in 90, I, I wasn't really like conscious at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it, we can assume it had a certain relationship to the audience in terms of how radical it was and how, you know, at the time it wasn't Twin Peaks. It was a new thing that people hadn't experienced and they had a certain, they had to decide what their relationship to it was on the fly. Most people decided, nah, after <laughs> after a couple episodes. <laughs> um, and, you know, th everyone else kind of kind of just stayed obsessed. And I think very much the same thing is happening um, with the new episodes where it, this show, I, I, I read, uh, I think it was Sonia Soraya, was talking about hey, you know ever since the original Twin Peaks came out there's been all kinds of shows sort of dealing with the uncanny and dealing with dream logic and dealing with all this stuff so it's weird it's this was before the these episodes had come out she was saying you know it's it's interesting that it's going to come out in this space where other shows have done similar things mm -hmm. uh, but then as soon as this started I thought not real I mean these like that was true maybe of the old episodes but for these I mean this feels like the same if not further out from like the median of what modern tv is like this feels like it has the same relationship as the original did to what was on abc in in the fall of 1990 agreed i i completely agree with that assessment and i think for me one of the major questions going forward um is going to be 
whether at this point we're just not able to see yet whether there is some form of like parodic relationship here to the rest of the television landscape like mm -hmm. one of the things that people like critics were responding to a lot when the when the pilot came out or the premiere came on was um saying things like well you know so much of this stuff kind of seems familiar uh you know like the, the glass box seems like lost and the mm -hmm. the blah 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 the woman being killed is like true detective and like this kind of stuff and and for them i mean they were saying like you know and yet despite that the show still seems very unusual um which i think is all true but for me there is a question here as to whether lynch and frost are are thinking similarly about like the relationship of using what is being kind of commonly shown on television now and sort of trying to unpack it and make it extreme. And and for me, I think that that might be going on. I'm a little worried that, you know, the reason the soap opera and, and even the crime mystery stuff early on worked so well as a parody was because it wasn't just a parody. It was also like a celebration. Like they mm -hmm. love the soap opera. They love the sort of goofier elements of this. Like they respect it as well. And if you're trying to make the argument that like the scenes with um, – Miguel Ferrer and uh, Gordon Cole towards the end of this episode of the fourth episode there are sort of operating in that realm of like, oh, there's this sort of quality here of them being like FBI procedural type stuff, which I think you could make because the filmmaking there gets a little boring. Like you get the filmmaking gets a little bland. It's like you have a yeah. really long sequence with Ferrer and uh, and Lynch that's just close up shot reverse shot for like a really long time. And, it, and it's yeah. very, it's very strange. So part of me is thinking, okay, well maybe there is some of that going on, but I worry a little bit that it, it might actually be quite banal, like not in an interesting way, like not in mm -hmm. a banal to be loved, but banal to just like, there's a reason why it's banal. Right. So maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's just these, that was just not an interesting part of the episode and we're going to turn away from that. I don't know, but this for me is like going to be an ongoing question. Yeah. I mean, you're directing for 18 hours. I mean, some of it's going to be boring. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't a serious argument. We don't know yet. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, we, for what it's worth, we do know that Lynch has seen True Detective and liked it. Oh, did he say yeah, that? Yeah, he did say, I liked the characters or something like that. I don't know. He, but he, he has seen it. So there's, there's, there might be something there. That's something certainly to track as we go forward. I mean, I prefer to think of, of Lynch works as being sort of anachronistic in their own time uh, and not really having a strict relationship to other stuff. But, you know, who's, I mean, it's a brave new world. <laughs> Who can well, say? Well, and also like Frost might be having that relationship and then Lynch also, might just yeah, be doing yeah. whatever. I think, or doing Lynch, which I think is, is maybe the more likely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that in the past it was maybe easier to think, okay, well, this, was, this came from Lynch and this came from Frost, whereas this time it's so clearly a collaboration, yeah. like an intense, prolonged collaboration. So it, it might be, when things don't work, it might be, tri it might be trickier to, to, to lay praise and blame uh, where it where it deserves to go, but that's like another thing we can track over time. But uh, speaking of overtime, we are overtime, uh, so we're gonna have to keep talking about all this stuff: the New York, the everything, technology, all of it. We're gonna have to keep talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who's uh, we've we've gotten some uh, some interactions on Twitter. So thanks to everybody, and um, we've gotten a couple more ratings and things things like that on, on iTunes. We can always use more because, as you may or may not have noticed, there are now over fifty. Twin Peaks podcasts on iTunes, which is insane and amazing. So thanks, thanks to everyone for listening. You can find my piece about uh, about the episodes, um, both the one that went up before they aired and the one that went up after they aired, a combined like thirty five hundred words. Um, you can find them both at Sorted Cinema. And do you know when your Cinemascope piece is coming uh, out? That we're, it's going to publication in like a week, so it'll probably be out 
mid mid June, maybe even early June. I don't know what their turnaround is like. So keep an eye out for your um, at both cinemascope dot com. Although historically, the pieces I've written, they tend to keep them uh, paywall because they want people to buy the magazine. Right. Maybe this one won't be. We'll see. Yeah, because yeah. you know that's that they got to lure people in with exactly your stuff. support print journalism. Yay! Go Yay. buy a magazine. Yay! Pay All your right. writers. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in uh, a little over two weeks when there's a new episode. Yay! Woo! Thank you.